the Jewish leaders imprisoning the apostles and uh, an angel secretly lets them out and tells them to go back to the temple and preach, which they do. When the um, Jewish officials decide to hold court and bring the apostles from prison into the courtroom, they have a uh, rather shocking surprise. No prisoners. And somebody tells them, they're in the temple preaching. (laughs) And so they um, send some officers and so forth who uh, bring them back without violence. Uh, I suppose they sort of just invite them uh, to come along if they don't mind or whatever. And so now we've got the apostles reincarcerated and uh, actually standing trial now before the Jewish council. So that's where we are. Any comments or questions before we continue? Well, here's their uh, defense, 27 to 32. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, what does the high priest accuse them of? Disobeying their strict orders. Yes. Breach of conditions of parole. You know? They had been released with uh, the orders not to speak or teach in this name. And that is not what they've done. They have filled Jerusalem with this teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That reference to bringing this man's blood upon us, does that remind you of anything? What they said they wanted. Yeah, remember when Pilate said, you know, he wasn't responsible. He said, well, his blood be upon us and our children. They don't seem to like it well now. And notice they don't even use his name. This man's blood. That's, uh, they, I think they're kind of disdainful of him. Those are the accusations. What does Peter say in his defense? Yes, which is a very important point. Normally, would we obey court orders? Yes, you know, as a matter of respect for the uh, government, as God is appointed, constituted, uh, having uh, a position of authority, we'd respect that. But God comes first. And the orders that they gave were against the Lord. That's always the way it is. God's authority trumps man's authority in any sense. So I think you would you could look at that same passage, you know, with a boss's authority or a um, husband's authority or elders' authority, or parents' authority, or whatever. You know, nobody can order me to do something contrary to God's will. We obey God rather than man. And so on that basis, he was doing the right thing. He was obeying God. Um, And then, he goes ahead and does what in 30 to 32? 
re, uh, restates the story how we got to this point. Yeah, and the story involves basically what? They were part of the story. <laughs> they were, weren't they? What had they done in the story? They're the ones that had killed this man that they when his blood on them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he focuses on what God had done to reverse their action. God raised up Jesus. He exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior. You know, so the Lord had reversed their verdict and he was offering Jesus as a savior to give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. And they're witnesses of his resurrection, and so is the Holy Spirit that God is giving to the ones obeying him. So, you've got, you know, basically a sermon about Jesus preached while they're on trial. Not the first time we've seen people do that, and won't be the last time either. I mean, they view every situation as an occasion to preach about Jesus. Even tense, traumatic situations, like being on trial. Comments and questions. Well, that kind of uh, creates a problem for these leaders. <laughs> um, you know, what are they going to do about this? Uh, because obviously the apostles are not going to shut up. They are willing to defy the orders of the Jewish council. So, what are they going to do? 33 to 39. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. <clears throat> then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men, and let them alone. For if this plan, or if this plan, or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Alright, so their initial reaction was to do what? Kill. Yeah, that's what they really wanted to do. They were cut to the quick. This really stung them. They were enraged. And they, they decided they're just going to kill him. Now, th that phrase, they were cut to the quick, is used again in 754. When they were upset about Stephen's speech, and what did they do? They stoned him. So, they are mad enough to kill. That's, that's what they intend to do. Uh, such a contrast between the calmness of Peter and John and the other apostles here. And the rage of these leaders. Um, but but what, uh, what happens that kind of changes their mood? Who speaks? Cooler, cooler head, Gamaliel. Yeah. Who was a respected Pharisee, a respected teacher? He has the the defendants, the apostles, go outside the courtroom so he can just talk with, you know, his guys. And 
he makes an appeal for them to not, you know, take any drastic actions like killing them. Now, do you understand what Gamaliel's arguing here? What, what does he what's he say? <laughs> So he's appealing for caution, for sort of a hands-off, wait-and-see policy, and basically saying that in time it'll be obvious anyway. And in fact, he cites a couple of examples of some false messiahs who, who burned out quick, fizzled out. Who does he cite? <clears throat> what happened to Thutis? Yeah, and people were dispersed and nothing happened to that movement. Who else does he cite? <coughs> and what happened to him? Yeah, he died and his movement was dispersed. You know, here's some contemporary examples where, you know, here were false messiahs, it wasn't from God, doesn't last long and it just kind of uh, blows up. Now, <coughs> there's one issue I probably should deal with here. I don't know. You never know when to deal with these issues and when not to. But if we don't deal with all of them, at least some of the ones we do deal with may give you some ideas of how to deal with others. There is a problem with Thutis in verse 36. Because Josephus, the Jewish historian, puts his um, uprising a few years after Acts 5. Which, of course, would be difficult for Gamaliel to, Gamaliel to use that as evidence if it hadn't happened yet. And so that becomes an issue for, say, the uh, truth and authenticity of Luke as a historian. Now, Luke would have written this after Thutis did it. But how could Gamaliel have cited it before he did it? So it's like, well, Luke just kind of, you know, that's kind of what he imagined Gamaliel might say and he didn't catch the chronological error. That would be the argument. And could Luke have just made a mistake like that? Luke in his own person maybe, but yeah. we believe this is inspired by God. Uh, you know, God doesn't have memory issues, you know. Um... And he doesn't lie. So that's a real issue for us. It's a typical of the kinds of historical inaccuracies that people find in the Bible. Has somebody dealt with that before? Do you know how how have you approached that? Anybody dealt with? But here's here's a couple things you might think about that I think are adequate to deal with this. It's possible that there was another Thutis. That was a reasonably common name. It was a shortened form of about four other names. And so there was quite a few Thutises. Um, according to Josephus, in a 40-year span, he names four Simons and three Judases that rose up as insurgents. There was a lot of stuff going on all through this period of time. So it's not out of the question that there could have been a second Thutis that he doesn't mention. Maybe the better response, though, is that perhaps Josephus was wrong. 
you know, he frequently makes mistakes on matters of chronology, and frequently makes mistakes even when he's recounting Bible stories from the Old Testament. He doesn't get the details right a lot. He's considered to be a decent historian, but he's not perfect. Um, you know, things like that are not very uh, precise sciences. It's probably an irrelevant observation, but um, <laughs> there is a book. I, this is on tape, so I'm not do too much to divulge the uh, source. There's a book I, I read, you know, one time that actually tried to cite a, a, a work that I had been involved with publishing. Oh, it was ridiculous. Everything they did about that was wrong. They, they cited it out of chronological context. They said it was written to re- reply to a certain teaching, a certain book that had been written, and, and the book that I published was, was published before that book had even been published. The, the bibliographical information was incorrect. This was a, a historical work, and, and is considered to be by a reputable historian. Um, it just like, I saw that, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder how many other things in this book are like that. You know, and I'm just citing that as, as an example. Things aren't always real careful. You know, you read something in a book, you just assume, well, this is long gospel. Unnecessarily, so I'd, I'd come much nearer trusting Luke than I would, would Josephus. It is possible there's a second Judas. That that is not out of the question. But but I'm more inclined to imagine Josephus may have just made a mistake and he put it out of its proper chronology. Since we know he does that, there was there's this study written by a guy named Shay Cohen that that actually goes through a number of Josephus's chronological errors. Uh, and documents documents them. So, you know, the one thing we must not do when people come up to us with these kind of criticisms is just automatically assume the Bible text is the one that's wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and there's been plenty of cases where people thought the Bible text was what was wrong and with more information that's come to light over a period of years, the Bible text was confirmed. And we realized... Uh, what we knew historically was not fully accurate yet, and uh, so that—that's where I stand on that. I don't—I don't have a particular problem with things like that. But if you have never heard something like that before, and somebody presents that well, it can be a little unsettling. And it's good to know that there are ways of, you know, thinking through those things. Um, so Gamaliel's argument is, you know, it's—it's it's not gonna—it's not gonna last. You know, I, I think that's what he's thinking. This, this, you know, we don't have to do anything. You know, it'll it'll just kind of peter out. It'll run aground. The other movements have, you know, and I, I think I think he's just trying to say, let's use more moderation and caution. You know how you know how it was with Judas. You know how it was with Judas. It'd be the same thing with this movement. Now, that really helps as far as keeps him from being killed. You know, they listen to him and. Uh, you know, verse 40 starts out, they took his advice. And uh, so they, they, they decide not to kill him. What do you think about what Gamaliel said? Is that is that a accurate, uh, you know, way of looking at uh, things like this? I don't think so. Why not? Because we have things today that are not of God, and they've been around for centuries and centuries. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah, 
I say that's not a reliable index. It was convenient that he said it, <laughs> but I don't think he's right about that. I mean, you can't tell whether something is from God just because it's been around for a long time. Now, I think the other side of that is true. If it's from God, you can't stop it. Now, that's true. But if it's not from God, it still might last for a long, long time. Um, you know, by Gamaliel standards, then this is true. Because <laughs> it's been around forever. You know, for, for 2,000 years. Uh, but I, I really don't think that's the way to prove something. Uh, and, you know, there are religions that are older than Christianity. You know, what would we do with that if he was right? You know, Luke is obviously not vouching for the accuracy of this Pharisee. He's just reporting, here's what he said, and here's what happened. <laughs> Comments and thoughts on that? Kind of like quoting Job. <laughs> yes, or Job's friends. Or Job's friends. We can quote the Bible, but we need to make sure what, what it is we're Right. Quoting. And sometimes they were right, and there's actually a quotation of Eliphaz in 1 Corinthians. It's an accurate statement that he made. But you can't just assume in Job that the statements Job or the friends made were accurate. Sometimes they were, and sometimes they really weren't. Other thoughts or comments through 39? I wonder if Gamaliel, you know, I get the impression that maybe he was looking for a way to, you know, I don't know, what, you can't see what his motives were, but almost like he was looking for a way to <coughs> see if this was it. You know, to see, you know, everyone else was dead set against it because it was cutting into their territory. You know, so, so, you know, there's the possibility, I guess, that he didn't believe that any more than we do, but was looking for a way to appease the rest of them to, to let them go. Yeah, you know, we're just not given any more information about what he, all he was thinking. Uh, so it kind of depends on how you read it as to what you're thinking that his motive is behind saying this. Yeah, and just... I mean, he didn't say a lot, just he was a teacher of the law, is that what it is? Yeah, respected so, by all the people. The same one that taught Paul? Yes, yes. So so maybe he had a little bit of an idea if he was <laughs> more accurate in his study and teaching. He was a respected teacher, you know, so, I don't know. Other thoughts? All right, 40 to 42. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beat, beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had, they were counted worthy to suffer, suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. So, what did they do? Beat them. Beat them and... Yeah, ordered them to not preach. And then let them go. They get beaten an awful lot, you know. <laughs> that would sure, not be a pleasant thing. Beat it into them. Yeah. They tried speaking to him. I think they were trying to beat it out of him, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's amazing the uh, 
the determination of these men because when they leave the council how sad are they? <laughs> They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That is an amazing statement. Wow. <laughs> Teaches us a lot. Would we feel that way? Maybe we think we were too worthy to suffer. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. The focus is right. Focus is on on God. And they just keep preaching. Every day, in the temple, from house to house. If nothing stops them, they're relentless. Really uh, powerful example, encouragement to us. All right. Anything else you want to say on chapter five? You know, I think it, to me it brings new light on uh, just makes me think about Second Timothy two or Second Timothy one verse eight. Well, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I think a lot of times in my life, I think of that verse as, well, you know, don't be ashamed to go and talk to your friends about the gospel. Don't be ashamed of, of what you believe. Um, but here, they weren't ashamed of the shame, almost. They were, they brought a little glory in that. Uh, and I think a lot of us would be embarrassed. Uh, we have been, I mean, it's not, it's not a good thing to be called to court. It's an embarrassing <laughs> thing. Um, even if it's something you didn't do, stuff's awesome, you want to tell everybody. And here they are using this opportunity not only to, to, to speak, but to preach. Good point. And, and to think that they were doing all these things for the glory of the Lord to show their focus and their utmost determination to glorify their Lord in whatever they possibly could. I think a lot of ways we would say, well, that's gone a bit far. Well, no, that's, that's them loving the Lord. Yeah, they're a great example. <clears throat> this ought to inspire us. Other thoughts? Yeah, was it, uh, how, how common was it for the priests and the others to put people to death? <laughs> you know, it, it seems when you compare that to the, it, what it seemed to be the hoops they had to jump through to get Jesus put to death, yet here it's like, oh, well, they were just getting ready to slay these guys, and then later they stoned Stephen. That may not have been the same group, but I guess you get mad at enough, you do anything, whether it's lawful or not. Suffer the concept of thinking about that. That's kind of what I think, later. yeah. I heard something about there was also a new, not a new emperor, but a new governor, and he was less strict or something. I don't know about that. But uh, I don't know about that. Anything else? Check five. Well, Chapter 6 is really uh, quite a, uh, you know, interesting and, and helpful passage. So a lot of things to think about in connection with this chapter. The first half deals with another big problem for the Christians. I mean, we've been looking mostly at like external persecution as a problem for them, but they've got some problems on the inside that this reveals. So, I think we should read this, and then we'll talk some about what we can uh, learn from this. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in those days, when the number, the number of the disciples was multiplying, 
or those that complain against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, <coughs> It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven good, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. We will, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they they laid hands on him. You said through seven. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the Okay. This is a time when the movement's growing. More and more disciples. And uh, that may be a part of what's going on in the background to this. What, what, what's the complaint? What's the problem? Hellenists were complaining because their widows were in the Yes, exactly. Now what are the Hellenists? What does this mean? Non-Palestinian Jews who normally spoke Greek. That's correct. Wow. Do you understand what that's saying then? You've got these native Hebrew Jews. They speak Aramaic, Hebrew, whatever, Aramaic. Uh, and they're from, you know, that area, around Judea, whatever. But then you've got the Jews that are spread out all over the Roman Empire. that speak Greek and have... They've made more adaptations to living in the the world. It's kind of like I like to parallel, you know, American Indians. Some of them still live on the reservation, wear the tribal clothes, speak the tribal languages, and so. Then there are American Indians who've gone into the world and they've associated with society and they get educated and they have jobs and they, you know, wear what we wear and they eat what we eat and they speak what we speak and so forth. They're still American Indians, ethnically, but they're not nearly as strict in holding to, you know, the traditional values of the American Indian. Native American, I think you're supposed to say now. Um, So, so that's kind of what you got. You got these Pure bread, you know, right down the line. Hebrews, that they're from here, they speak this stuff, and, and you know, they're the good ones. And then you got those that from all over the place, that they make compromises. You know, they're not pure in, what they, in, their, in their language and things like that. There was tension between those two groups. Now, you had, on the day of Pentecost even, people from those other areas that were here uh, for the feast, that were converted, probably just stayed in Jerusalem. That means you've got tension. The movement's growing, and these uh, Greek-speaking Jews from elsewhere are thinking that their widows are not getting a fair portion of food. They're, They're being neglected, as apparently one of the things that had happened is the brethren were actually preparing and, and giving food to the, the widows among them that were in need. Does that make sense? As far as what the problem is? If, it, if, the, if the group hadn't been growing, it might not have been such a problem. You know, but, but what happens as anything grows? Everybody wants to share. Yes. 
And it's easy to neglect certain elements, certain people, certain sectors. It's harder to keep up with things. The, you know, the leader's memories are not adequate. You know, not everybody can receive personal attention from the same people and all that kind of stuff. So in the growing, this growing Christianity, growing church, there were some who were feeling sort of left out in terms of being able to share in this food distribution. So, what do the uh, what do these people do? They complain. Yeah, they complain about it. You know, and this complaint was pretty significant. Look at four thirty four. In four thirty four, there was not a needy person among them, and now some of them are complaining. There is. There are some that aren't eating enough. There are some that are are uh, being neglected, and neglecting widows is an especially stinging indictment. I mean, because God had such special care for widows. And it really threatens the unity of the church. This is a serious matter. You know, this will really, this could lead to a split among the early Christians. Now, what do you do? You're the apostles. And they they lay this in your lap. (laughs) You know, you're, you're, you're trying to spread the gospel, you're trying to deal with, you know, whatever. And the Hellenists think their widows aren't being, you know, getting a fair amount to eat in this food serving. Well, you can think about all kinds of things that people might do. I want to suggest a few things they don't do, that people might do. You can come up with some of your own as well. But one thing they don't do is try to sweep this under the rug and say, oh, we don't criticize here. You know, we don't talk about these things. You know, shh. We don't want anybody to think things are going badly. They don't do that. In fact, they'll do just the opposite. They get the whole congregation together and openly, transparently relate the problem and what to do about it. They do the opposite of trying to keep it hush-hush. Transparency is so helpful. You know, when, when, when somebody in the congregation comes with a problem, try to just get them to be quiet about it and make it understood nobody's supposed to question us. You know, we're the leaders in this congregation. Who are you to say that, that your widows are being neglected? Or are being neglected? You know, they don't sweep the problem under the rug. They don't suggest a separate church for the Hellenists. That would have been an easy thing to do. Well, then why don't you guys just start your own church and, and, and you collect up you know food and you just do that you, you know I mean you're not kind of, you're not our kind anyway they don't do that some people would have but they don't they also don't let themselves become distracted they have some very important things to do they are not personally going to attend to this matter. What were the priorities for the twelve? Prayer and ministry. Absolutely. Prayer and preaching. And and they've got so much to do in that, it's not reasonable that they divert from that to start, you know, overseeing who eats what. It's not that that doesn't need to be done, but they really aren't in a position to do that because they've got other things, prayer and preaching, that they need to be doing. Sometimes it's easy for us to be distracted from our real work. Sometimes preachers are like that. 
you know, a preacher who's supposed to be spreading the word ends up, you know, being distracted by lots of uh, administrative details and, and, and whatever, personal issues. Um, and Satan would like to distract the attention of the people who really are in a position to help the others grow spiritually. <clears throat> so they don't get distracted. They suggest an alternate plan that we'll talk about in just a second. What, what are some other questions or comments you have here about the introduction to this problem? They don't seem to dispute over the fact that there's a problem. I agree. Or trying to solve the, you know, the, the root cause or, or, or get on to those who are maybe guilty of something. I find all that interesting. They just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take care of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. You know, all the finger pointing and analysis and so forth is not going to get those widows fed. <laughs> I've never seen the transparency part before, but that's good. I love that. I just think that's so helpful. The, you know, you do not help things by just intimidating people enough that they just don't talk about it. You know, you just don't question things here. You know, you either put up or shut up, you know, whatever. Get out, you know, accept it or get out. No. They allowed them and, and open it up. We're going to discuss this. You know, sweeping things under the rug is usually not a helpful way to deal with it. So, what do they suggest be done? Yeah. Let's find some men that we can put in charge of this that can actually devote themselves to that. It's kind of like, um, you know, a division of labor concept. God did not call me to be a jack of all ministries. <laughs> you know, to do everything. Nor did he call you to do that. We're not going to do everything. At least now we're gonna do, not going to do it well. I mean, why did the body have many members? And not all the members have the same function. Because God intends for certain people to do certain things and other people to do other things. I'm not saying there aren't some things that are common to all Christians in terms of responsibilities. But we're not all going to be able to do all the things that need to be done. And so, find seven men, we'll put them in charge. It's the idea of delegating. You know, not trying to do everything ourselves. Uh, now, what kind of men do they suggest they choose? Can you see why those are important qualifications? Why is it important that they be of good reputation? Well, people have to be able to listen to them. Absolutely. If these guys don't have a good reputation, who's going to trust them to do the right job in this food distribution thing? I mean, I don't know. Who do you point as treasurer of the congregation? The guy that just uh, got out of prison for embezzling? It's not that he's not perhaps forgiven and a, a sincere servant of the Lord, but with that kind of reputation, at the, at the very least, people probably won't trust him. Maybe it'd be an additional temptation to him. I mean, you know, there are times that reputation matters. In, it's not that we need to try to impress people, but, but if, if these guys are going to be accepted in their role, they're going to have to have a good reputation. Well, why is it important that they be full of the Holy Spirit? 
what does that tell you about them? They're full of the Spirit. It's more than just a physical job. Yes. Would it matter if they were spiritual people and filled with the Spirit? Yes, it matters. It always matters. I don't care if, you know, I don't know, we're uh, washing windows. The people who ought to be chosen to serve are spiritual people who have good character. You know, these guys need to have good character. They need to be spiritual people. They need to have the Spirit of God in them. They don't say, okay, let's appoint somebody who's got a certain level of, of uh, education or something like that. That's not important. They need to be spiritual. And what's the other quality they have to have? Why would that be important? I mean, to try to figure out how to deal with this, how to equitably set up a system where everybody's going to get fed, and so forth, it's going to take some wisdom. They're going to have to be sensible, you know, logical kind of guys to be able to do this. I think, I think uh, that the apostles set up excellent criteria for the choice that the congregation's going to make. They're going to let the group make the choice, but they set up the parameters. These are the kind of guys you need to look for. Pretty much, these are the kinds of guys you'd want to look for for almost any kind of a job. You get guys who uh, are have a good reputation full of the spirit of wisdom, you probably got a pretty good uh, set for, for whatever needs to be done. So, you've got the moral, the spiritual, and the practical qualifications. And the seven they choose all have Hellenistic Greek names. That wouldn't prove they weren't native Hebrews, but when all seven of them do... Generally, the native Hebrews had Hebrew-sounding names, and the dispersion had, you know, Greek-sounding names. So it looks like the church appointed guys from the group that was complaining. If they've got their own people in charge of this, they surely won't have occasion to complain now. All right, comments or questions through verse uh, five. widows are going to starve to death by the time we figure out what to do for them. <laughs> yeah. It was the church. It was, I think, some of the church today, yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? Um, a lot of times people think um, these are like the first like, deacons. Yeah. Um, the word um, serve tables, if I'm not mistaken, in verse 2 is the uh, verb form of deacon. They made deacon tables. Because the word deacon just means a servant. Now, the question mark we always have in this is, is it using that word in a technical sense or not? Are these just servants? Or are they special servants, deacons? Um, so that's the question. I don't have a strong feeling 
But I'm fine with saying they're deacons. That doesn't. That's that's. I have no. Re- I don't have any issue with that. Uh, so it may well be. I don't know. I like how the apostles told people to pick out these seven people. Yes. So that way, you know, they well, if they had a problem later on, you know, they couldn't blame the apostles for it. But also, um, it really keeps them from getting the impression that the apostles are trying to lord it over them. It also keeps them from getting lax and just waiting for the apostles to do everything for them. They are the ones choosing the man. The apostles said, here's the kind of guys to choose. You guys choose them. So that's, you know, I think that's a good pattern for us. That we don't need to make all the decisions and micromanage everything. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense, but some people feel like they've got to decide everything, they've got to control everything, they've got to run everything. Sometimes preachers are bad about that. You know, or certain elders, or, or whatever, where they just feel like everything is going to be done, they got to have their hand right on it. they got to be in charge of it. The apostles, they have something more important to do. Get these seven guys, they'll be in charge of it. They'll handle it. You chose the men. You chose the men that fit the criteria that you respected. Now they'll take care of it. This is a great way to handle the problem. Yeah, sure. I don't know how one thing this does for the people. It shows that they are also active. Kind of like what Ryan's saying also is that they're not just saying we follow the apostles, whatever they do, we do, you know, whatever they tell us to do, we, we humbly obey. This is them taking a role and doing what's right. Yes. Instead of just sitting, and I think that's a lot of times, and I, I think part of the problem in, in, in my church, one of the churches in Seymour, is that a lot of times I think some of the people just sit down and just say, well, whatever the men say we're going to do, we're going to do. Instead of some of the actual men don't play an active part in it, and almost kind of like we're just going to wait until what everybody else says and we're going to do it that way, That just that's not unity. That's right. That's just people just saying whatever and just following along. And that can be good at times, but when you're not active and you're not helping out, I mean, that, 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 that doesn't make the unity that Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. Good point. So they choose the men, they bring them to the apostles, they laid their hands on them. Some debate about who the they is. Probably the apostles laid their hands on these men. Maybe even gave them spiritual gifts, because it's after that that two of them are able to now work spiritual gifts. And up to this point, only the apostles, as far as we know, if you look at the list, notice the importance of the first two names on the list. They will be the subject of the next two main divisions. Um, so this is another case where uh, Luke will introduce us to somebody in a minor role before he shows it, us uh, their major role. And then the uh, word continues to spread. Uh, the disciples continue to increase greatly and even a lot of priests are becoming obedient to the faith. That would have required a lot of sacrifice for them to be converted, but they're having a lot of impact. Comments and questions on this section? Shane. Uh, 
So they're, because it says they're full of the Holy Spirit, they, they were to have men that were full of the Holy Spirit. So they weren't laying their hands on to give the Holy Spirit, they were laying their hands to give them spiritual gifts. That's a possibility. Or to appoint them to the work. I mean, I'm reminded that passage in Timothy talks about not laying hands on them too quickly or whatever. I think it's... Not, not to... First Timothy 5. First Timothy 5, yeah, just whatever that all entails. But, so it wasn't to give them the Holy Spirit... I think it's possible it was to give them the spiritual gifts. From what we see later in chapter 8, and from the fact that the first time we see anybody besides apostles working spiritual gifts, it's not going to be Stephen and Philip. But it could be that this is just their endorsement, just their sort of appointing them to their role. Other comments and thoughts through verse 7? Alright, we'll zero in then on Stephen, though not in the role of taking care of the widows. Uh, while that was his special job, he did a lot of preaching and teaching um, for a while. Uh, so, 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some man from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter uh, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So, the next several major sections are introduced by the name of the main character in 6.8 and Stephen. In 8.5, uh, Philip. And in 9.1, now Saul. So that the next several chapters are going to be Stephen, Philip, and Saul, and some things about them. Now, what it says about Stephen... See if you can figure out kind of uh, what characteristics uh, were, were, were sort of defining for Stephen. Look at verse 3, verse 5, and verse 8. What can you say about Stephen? Had a good reputation. Full of spirit. Full of wisdom. Full of grace and faith. And that's it, right? You got those five characteristics. Power. Did you lose power? Do we have that? Yeah, we do, don't we? Let's see. Not faith. I don't see faith. Well, faith and grace are interchangeable. King James uses faith. That's the way it is. Okay. Yeah. Faith and grace are the same word. New King James is faith. Yeah, verse 5. American Standard's grace. And verse 8. 
Okay, yeah. So we've got all those. Alright, so we've got good reputation, spirit, wisdom, then from verse 5, faith, Holy Spirit, and from verse 8, grace and power. Look at all the things that you can see, say, about these, uh, the qualities of Stephen. They make a good sermon. You know, these are the things he's full of. And uh, so a really, really good man. And he's able now to perform these signs and wonders. And although his special role is to take care of needy widows, he's also a preacher of the gospel. And he starts arguing, you know, or some of the men from certain synagogues start arguing with him. And what happens in verse 10? They can't cope or deal with his wisdom. In other words, yeah. They can't refute him. They can't answer what he's saying. So what do they do? They lie. Exactly. If they can't win the argument, they'll resort to some smear tactics. They're going to say some false things. So they, they, they go around secretly getting men to say that, that he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stir up people and drag him before the council and they make all these accusations about him. You know, why? Because they couldn't cope with what he was saying. Now, isn't that a, a pitiful way to handle this? But it'll happen sometimes. Sometimes false accusations are because they can't answer you. And uh, so, what are they accusing him of speaking against? Moses, God, Moses, God the holy place, the law. Is that it? The customs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, so, so we'll destroy this place and also the, the customs Moses handed down. So, they're saying he's against Moses, he's against the temple, and he's against the law. Name dropper. He hits, it all, hits all the biggies. Yeah, yeah. He's against everything that's right. Yeah. Does, you know, does Stephen remind you of anybody? Depends a little bit on the rest of the things about him too. But. Know anybody who was falsely accused about the temple on trial? <laughs> that was Jesus. You know, he's in a trial-like setting. There's false witnesses that talk about the temple. He's charged with blasphemy. He's uh, the high priest will say in seven one are these things so. So he's invited to speak, and at the end of his life. He'll commit his spirit to the Lord. He'll cry out with a loud voice and he'll intercede for the enemy's forgiveness. So I think when it's all said and done, Stephen is imitating Jesus. Good practice. Yeah, very good. It's probably really helpful for the uh, speech that Stephen will make in chapter 7, to be particularly clear about these accusations. They say he's against Moses. They say he's against the holy place, that is the temple. You might think about, what what he said that made them think he was against the temple? 
and they thought he was against the law. So that's what they're accusing him of. And when Stephen starts speaking, he's going to be he's, these accusations against him are going to be in the background. Alright, anything you want to say uh, through chapter 6? I wonder if the uh, demeanor of the council is going downhill with the fact that any that any of any good reputation were becoming followers of <laughs> Jesus, so the ones that were left That's a good point. More stubborn. That's a good point. And more worried about their uh, position of authority. Yeah, good point. The Lord gets the cream of the crop, doesn't he? We always see throughout like the New Testament with the um, when they're left, they never really cared about what's actually true. They're just trying to make themselves look better, like especially with Jesus. They, uh, with Jesus, um, would ask him a question. Sometimes they like look at both of the answers. Sometimes they don't like either way they answered it, so they wouldn't answer. Yes. So they never really cared what was actually true. Yeah. Yeah. You know. How how with, with a straight face that can they be twisting false witnesses' arms? You know, underhandedly trying to get them to make these accusations. I mean, what are they thinking? It's amazing how how hardened our conscience can be. Hi, comments or questions further on chapter six? Stephen's speech, chapter 7, is fascinating. Um, It's the longest speech in Acts. And, wow, there's just a lot in this. To some extent, it sort of surveys the history of Israel. As there are a number of chapters in the Bible that do. Uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26, Joshua 24, Nehemiah 9, various Psalms so forth. So he kind of goes through and does a little sketch of Israel's history, starting all the way back in the time of Abraham and coming on forward. Um, and, and, and in a sense, you know, what Stephen does is disarming. Can you argue with what he's talking about? He's just talking about their common history. So he tells the stories that they know and love. You know, it, it's, it's, it's something that they, they'd have to agree with him on these points. But it's kind of where he has to start. You start where people are. This is their common ground. But the way he tells the story lays some impressive groundwork for what he's trying to say. You know, this is a story told not just to tell a story. This is a story told with a point. And it's just fascinating to see how this develops. And you really see Stephen does something with these stories. He doesn't just tell them. Um, so so that's, that's what we're doing. And, and so to some extent, he's going to get a hearing. Because he's talking about what they believe too. But we'll start looking for little hints that show us what Stephen's saying. You know, what's, what's he really saying this for and that for? You know, in a case like this, ask the question, why did he, why did he bring out that part? Why did he tell about that event? You know, what's, what's he getting at? What, you know, is he just telling them, well, here's the history, guys. 
you know, that's not really relevant just to tell the history to be telling the history. And, uh, you know, he does the same thing that we sometimes would do with, with Bible events. We tell them to make a point. You know, here's the event, and here's how this applies. So that's what Stephen's going to do. Any comments or questions before we really start into Stephen's speech? It's kind of funny how they're accusing him of being against Moses and everything, so he starts off like the whole history of like the Jews and everything. Yes. Yes. That in itself, he's not against Moses. In fact, he'll talk a lot about Moses in a very complimentary way. He's not against the law. He's talking about the law and the covenant God made with him. And so forth. So, let's look at the beginning of this. Um, somebody want to read 1 to 8? And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country into which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abram became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Alright. Um, he starts out asking them to hear him. Brethren and fathers, you know, he establishes the common ground. The God glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Why would he tell us that? I know it's part of the story, but what's his, what's the deeper point about this? Remember what they accused him of being against. Temple. What about it? Where God was. Where was he? In Haran. Or in Yeah. Or the Chaldees. The God of glory appeared to Abraham a long ways away from Jerusalem. And the mountain and the temple. You know, this idea that there's this special holy place, and that is God's only place, and you either worship there or nowhere, because it's God's house. Well, look at your history. The God of glory showed his glory way over yonder in Mesopotamia when this whole thing got started with Abraham. So, right off the bat, he has shown God's appearing and God's presence is not limited to the temple. Now, you know, what I'm thinking as I go through this is 
why, why does he start where he does? Why does he choose the things he does? Well, I think we see purpose in this. You know, and he, know, he says the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He's going to talk about our father, our this, our that, until he gets to the end of the speech and then it's going to be your. <laughs> but right here, he's identifying with them. Now, um, there are some things that need to be uh, mentioned as far as historical stuff in this speech. There are quite a few details Stephen gives that you wouldn't know from the Old Testament. I believe Stephen had the Holy Spirit. And so that he was speaking by inspiration. I think he had the Holy Spirit in a special way. He was was able to work miracles to confirm his message. So I think he actually tells us some things that we wouldn't have known for sure outside of this. Uh, Some of them we might have, but we we might not have thought about it. Uh, For example, God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, sometimes when you read Genesis 12, you think it was only after he got to Haran that that, that was the case. Um, now, now God will say, you almost get that from the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 7 will say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. But it doesn't specifically say in the Old Testament that God spoke to Abraham while he was in the Ur of the Chaldees. This tells us he did. You know, God, God called Abraham not just from Haran, but he called them, him all the way back from Ur of the Chaldees. Um, so that's an important lesson uh, for us. Um, another thing that you need to know and think about. In verse 4, from there after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. Now, this is when he was in Haran. After his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. Now, uh, I may not uh, come up with the exact verses. Let's see if we can go back to Genesis 11. But do you know the problem with that? Let's see here. In Genesis 11, verse 26, Terah lived 70 years. This is 11.26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Okay? I have to keep track of these numbers. And uh, then, Terah was how old when he died? Verse 32. 205. And how old was Abraham when he departed from Haran? 12.4. You see the problem? All right. It's, there he does it. If Terah was 70 when Abram was born, and Abram was 75 when he left Haran, and Terah was 205 when he died, how can Stephen say that he left the land of the Chaldees and settled in Haran from there after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you're now living? You know... If he was 70 when Abraham was born, Abraham was 75 when he moved, that would have put Haran at only 145. Yet the text said Haran lived to be 205, so it looks like Abraham moved to Canaan 60 years before his father died. Now again, I don't know how relevant it is to bring up some of these issues. It's not necessarily helpful to us in understanding Stephen's speech, but if you ever look at that and start, you know, 
or somebody points that out, uh, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> so I'll point out a few of these problems, uh, partially because I don't want you to think they don't have an answer. Somebody comes along one of these days and points that out, you just happen to be noticing, it could be kind of uh, unsettling to you. You know, how did Stephen miss that? Well, there's two explanations uh, that are possible. I have a preference as to which one, um, but I'll give them both to you, and you can tell me what your preference is. Or maybe there's another one. Um, when it says in Genesis 11:26 that Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, do you suppose that they were triplets? No. <laughs> so it must mean he started giving birth at 70, but he didn't bear all of them. It's not necessarily true that Abram is the oldest just because he's named first. There are plenty of examples where that's not the case. He's probably named first because he's most important in this later story. So could it be that Haran, uh, or, or Terah, uh, became the father of one of the others when he was 70 and didn't become the father of Abraham until he was maybe 130. That, that would be a, at least a possible way of solving that. Right, here's a second way. The Samaritan Pentateuch gives Terah's age at death as 145. It's possible that the Samaritan Pentateuch which would have been based upon a much earlier copy of the, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. It's possible that it actually preserves the correct reading and that originally it said 145. Philo, who was a Jewish scholar, said that Abraham did not leave Herod until his father died. But Philo would have known Genesis. So it's possible that the, the earlier texts of Genesis we have the Samaritan Pentateuch as a witness, actually say that uh, Terah died at 145. If that's the case, then 70 plus 75 is 145, Haran dies, and Abram moves. That's my preference. But the other one's a possibility. But my preference is to take the witness of the Samaritan Pentateuch and assume that uh, the original text said in Genesis 11:32, the days of Terah were 145. You can you can take the other option if you prefer, or you can come up with a different one. Both of those deal with it. Both of those are are adequate explanations. Uh, so it's not some contradiction. It is a problem. You have to consider those options. Do you have some thoughts and comments on that? What is the Samaritan Pentateuch? <laughs> Good question. Well, you know what the Pentateuch is. Yes. First five books. It's it's a it is it's what the Samaritans used as, as their first five books. It's it's a it's a it's a rendition of Genesis to Deuteronomy, but it's not what the Hebrews copied. So it's like it's almost like a it's almost like a different copy. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's like, I don't know, it would seem natural tendency would be I'd lean toward the Hebrew copy and not this, you know, mongrel race that is carrying forward some copy. That's possible. Uh, but, 
it's not necessarily the case that there wasn't a mistake that crept into the Hebrew that didn't sure. creep, creep into the Samaritan Pentateuch. Uh, particularly when Philo confirms that. Uh, my guess is Philo's text, he wouldn't have used the Samaritan Pentateuch, but my guess is that Philo's text said 145. And who is that? He was a Jewish scholar back around the time of Christ. Okay. I don't remember exactly. So he was before Josephus. Yeah, yeah, he was a little bit, I think, about the same time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's making me think that he had a text that probably said 145 also. So that's, an, you know, the, that's another thing that makes me think it's quite possible that the original had 145, and there's a, been a copyist error creep in, lots of copyist errors with numbers in the Old Testament. So that seems like a pretty rational explanation to me. Um, I resist the other one just a little bit because Abrams seemed to think it was so weird for him to have a son when he was 100. And that would have put his father having him when he was 130. So why would it have been so weird for him to have a son when he was 100? That bothers me a little bit with that first explanation. There may be another explanation. There may be something else. I haven't thought about it. Stone City, 205 out of 145. Well, when you're copying numbers in the Old Testament, there's a lot of problems, but I don't know what those numbers looked like. You know, uh, so I'm not, I don't know Hebrew, but their numbers were actually letters, and a lot of times they looked very much alike. It's easy. They were not as different looking. Have you ever seen Hebrew characters? Well, man, they looked a lot alike, some of them did. More so than our numbers and letters do. And so it was easy to mess up. You wouldn't mess up in a word, because you know the word. But you mess up in a number, because you don't know what the number is going to be. So there's more textual questions about the transmission of numbers. Alright, you can, you can uh, think about all that. Like I say, some of that may not be all that helpful... But if you ever, you know, study that, uh, th- that's an issue that, that needs to be dealt with. We haven't really looked yet at the point he's making overall about Abraham, but we'll just pick up on that uh, next week and uh, kind of look, look for 2 to 8 a little bit more in terms of what it's actually saying about Abraham and so forth and continue in Stephen's speech. So, good to uh, talk about those things and thanks for listening.